the Canadian Military History Podcast. Provided by the Royal Regiment of Canada. Welcome back to the Canadian Military History Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Lacroix. In the first part of the episode with Stan Edgerton, we heard about his early plans for the Canadian Space Program. Let's listen to the rest of Stan's story, and hopefully he'll get into his exploits in pole vaulting. Don't forget, if you're planning to buy anything on Amazon, please visit www.canadianmilitaryhistorypodcast.ca first. Click on the Amazon link, and any purchases you make help support the podcast. Here's the second part of the interview with WO2 Stan Edgerton. After that, when the, finally when the Falaise Gap was closed, about the third week in August, our 2nd Division moved over to the coast more and started going up to the coastal, the coastal ports, like Dunkirk and Falaise and that. Right. And then when, when we got to uh, Dieppe, uh, the Germans had left. And General Creer decided that the next day the whole regiment, the whole division was going to have a march past in honor of the ones that were killed in 1942. Well, anyway, the next day we paraded through the streets of Dieppe and we marched through six abreast. And all all the fight bands in, in the in the Second Canadian Division were at the reviewing stand, and they played us by playing blue bonnets over the border. And I tell you, it was mind tingling. Stan, I heard some people got in trouble for that parade. Oh, <laughs> I would think so. I could tell you there was a, a couple of real, uh, oh, I, I used to call them dynamiters because they were wild, eh? And uh, when we uh, when we marched in the one side of town and out the other, can you imagine what it'd been like if they broke off 20,000 men in a small town like Piet? <laughs> it would be weeks before they'd get them together to move out again. Right. So uh, I'm not going to name any names, but there were two or three that they broke ranks, and they went back, and they were lined upside of, uh, the, uh, the brothel. Oh, jeez. <laughs> <laughs> That's so, not the kind of trouble I was thinking of. I was thinking they got in trouble from uh, General uh, Montgomery, or Field Marshal Montgomery, I should say. Oh, no. Well, there was trouble, but it wasn't to us in the ranks. Like... Uh, Montgomery apparently was gassed off big time with Creer. Like, he thought he shouldn't have stopped at Dieppe for this parade because he should have kept on going. That the most important thing at the time was the capture of Antwerp. Right. And Antwerp had already been captured by the British and the Belgium resistance. So uh, that was the decision I think that Creer had made that he was time to stop and have a victory parade in honor of our fall in 1942. Right. Does that answer your question? Oh, yes, both spectrums of trouble. Yes, the, the senior ranks and the junior ranks. Well done. <laughs> well, uh, I didn't, I, I, I put that in about the brothels, I'm sorry. <laughs> That's okay. And after that, uh, we started to head for Antwerp. And when we got to Antwerp, prior to us arriving there, the British Army, with the assistance of the Belgium resistance, captured the port and it was virtually intact. But the only problem was the port was useless because the waterway leading from the port to the sea was controlled both sides 
by the Germans. Right. And the waterway was 78 kilometers long to the sea. So then it was assigned to the Canadian Army and British units to clear this waterway, and it become known as the Battle of the Scheldt. Well, it, it was one of the worst conditions that the battle could ever be conducted because land was flatter than a pancake, and the Germans had flooded a lot of places so vehicles or tanks would be useless. So the only way you could go from one position to another was the top of the dike, and uh, they would just knock off anything that was on the dike. Well, finally, after about five, six weeks, the battle for the Scheldt was over, and the port was ready to be opened. But first of all, that 78-kilometer waterway had to be cleared of mines and obstacles. And finally, when the port opened, all the dignitaries were there, and uh, the mayor of Antwerp, Montgomery, Eisenhower, but nobody thought to invite any Canadians that worked so hard with the British to clear that waterway. Unbelievable. It was unbelievable, but one of the reasons was General Creer was on sick leave, but still Simmons was available. But anyway, after that, we it wasn't the end of the battle in Holland. We still had Hoogerheide, Wundsdreck, and Bergenop Zoom, and they were all fierce battles, eh? Well, Stan, yesterday, on the 26th of October, the Lincoln and Welland Regiment just celebrated the uh, Battle of Bergenop Zoom with a parade, a church service, and oh. a, a dinner. That was yesterday. Oh, geez, I wish I had known about that. Yeah, the Lincoln and Welland Regiment celebrates Bergenop Zoom every year. Oh, geez, I, uh, and I'm glad to hear that. But, but anyway, uh, it was just about this time, uh, it would probably be Woundstreck, and uh, we were at the side of the road, and there was just a, a dike ahead of us. And I got a letter from my sister-in-law in Scotland, Mamie. And I thought, geez, what's she writing me for? So uh, I opened it up, and here she informed me that on September the 16th, my brother was killed in Italy with the 48 Highlanders. And I tell you, I was really upset there, you know. And then about one week later, well, they come up with the mail, and I, here was a letter from my mother. And I opened it up, and inside was a piece of paper uh, from the government stating that, uh, as of now, uh, I'm 18 years of age, and I have to report to Number 2 District Depot, Toronto, for military training. <laughs> but what they did in them days is they called you up for six or eight weeks, and you took uh, basic training, and then they re returned you to civilian life. And you had the option to go active or go back to civilian life. And there was something like 72,000 recruit uh, pay, uh, soldiers that took this, and they were all returned to civilian life, and they did, didn't want to go active. Well, anyway, when I got my mother's letter, I opened it, and here I told you that I was to report for duty. So I goes up to my platoon sergeant, Archie Brown, and I said, you know, sergeant, you always obey your last order in the Army. He said, that's correct. So I said, well, i got to leave you guys. I says, uh, I've got to report to number two district depot for military training. So I showed him the letter, and he burst out laughing, eh? <laughs> and he told me to get lost. <laughs> so, so, well, anyway, uh, my next move was just outside of a place called Grosvenor, and this would be our, our winter line. And it was a place called Mook. And all, all around there, there was parachutes left over from Operation Market Garden, and we had some uh, elaborate dugouts, and they were all lined with parachutes. Well, then comes around Christmas time, and you know in the Army at Christmas time, as the officers and senior NCOs always serve 
Christmas dinner to the troops. Yes. Well, anyway, in, in the town of Mook, which was uh, evacuated, there was nobody there, but there was a small schoolhouse, and they turned that into uh, a kitchen, and half of the platoon from, like, say, there was four platoons in, 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 in the mortars. Half of them would go to the schoolhouse, and we were served Christmas dinner, waited by the officers and senior NCOs. And at the end of the meal, we were all given a, a, a Christmas present. Apparently, the ladies' auxiliary and other things like Salvation Army and that were, had people that were knitting, and we had the option to have a scarf or a pair of socks, and we would return to, uh, to our, our lines, eh? And then the other half would go back into MOOC and repeat the same procedure. And uh, finally, March the 26th, comes along, and when my mother wrote to me and showed me that letter, she started getting in touch with the, the higher-ups. Uh, she'd lost two sons, and she had one remaining son who was in action in Holland with the Toronto Scottish. So finally, as the wheels turn, and in the armed forces, they turn very slowly. So actually, five months later, I was called out of the line, March the 26th, and I was returned to battalion headquarters near Nijmegen. Well, I hung around there for, oh, maybe three weeks, and then I was posted to a, a prisoner of war thing. And actually, it, it wasn't a, a prisoner of war camp. It was more like a small town near a railway siding, and the fields around there was all gordoned off with barbed wire, and the prisoners would go in there, sleep overnight. In the morning, they were all paraded out, and they were deloused. And then they were given the bag with a couple of sandwiches, and they load them on the boxcars, and they ship them back into Belgium and, and France to clean up the mess down there. I did that for, oh, maybe three, four weeks. And finally, I was sent to Ostend, Belgium, and I boarded the boat to go back to England. And on the way over across the English Channel, I arrived, and we got to Camp Whitley in the south of England, and we were informed that the war was over and they told us to get lost. So I had chummed up with a fellow from the Hamilton Light Infantry, and him and I went up to London and celebrated DE Day, and after a couple of days, we run out of money, and we were returned to Whitley. And uh, we got everything in order again, and then I was granted one more leave. So I, I went up Scotland to see my sister-in-law, and my brother had a, a son named Frank, uh, what she had never seen, eh? So I seen the baby, and he was about a year old then. And I stayed with him for a few days, and finally uh, I went back to Whitley. And, uh, and in July, I was sent to, to go home, and I boarded a ship, a French liner called the Louis Pasteur. Oh, what a difference in the crossing. <laughs> Half the time, food was beautiful. And finally, I, I landed in Halifax, and I moved on to Toronto, Union Station, and there was my mother and my sister there to meet me. And it was really something to be reunited with them. And uh, I was, at the time there, uh, the city council had councillors and aldermen. And what they did is they would go, say, to Union Station and pick up a veteran and the family and drive them somewhere in Toronto to where they lived. And I always remember this uh, controller. He picked us up and he took us home and he came in the house to see the house and he seen a picture on the wall and he wouldn't believe this, but his name was Rolofson and he seen my father's picture. He says, you know, he says, I know that man. So my mother said, well, he was born in Galt. He says, well, I was in Galt too. So anyway, to make a long story short, he left and uh, comes along November the 12th. I was called in. I had to wait your turn to get a discharge, eh, because I joined up in 41. Anybody that joined up before me, 
they they were got discharged before me. So anyway, November 12th rolls around, and I got my discharge papers, and I walked out of the horse palace, and I thought to myself, what am I going to do now? <laughs> right. See? So I anyway, I got on the streetcar, and I went to uh, Adelaide and University, and that was fire department headquarters. And here I am in my uniform, and I went into the office, and I told the secretary that I'd like to see the chief. And uh, he says, what's it about? I says, it's about employment. So he says, well, I can fix you up. He says, because right now we're not hiring anybody. And he said, we have a policy. If a veteran is over 27, he can't get on the fire department. And he said, you're still a young lad. you got a few years to, to wait, eh? So I put an application in, and then I walked up University to College Street at 149 Police Headquarters. I did the same thing there. So then I come out and I thought, well, I'm not going to go home today until I get a job. So I heads down to Queen Street, and here it's the works department. So I, I walk in, and on the door, it says Commissioner Rolleston, same guy that drove me home from the uh, Union Station. Right. So I went up to the secretary, and I said, you know, I says, um, I'd like to see the commissioner. She says, what's it about? I said, well, it's personal. So anyway, I had to wait maybe 15 minutes, and... I goes in and I says, uh, uh, controller, I says, I don't think you really remember me, but I said, you drove my mother and my sister and I home from Union Station in July. Oh, yes, he says, I remember. I don't think he really did. So he says, what can I do for you? So I says, I just got out of the Army today, and I have to have a job. So he says, can you start tomorrow morning? So I went down to Dufferin and King, where the yard was, and I, I was taken on temporary in the work department, which I worked at for... Uh, quite a while, and finally I come home one day, and here was a letter from the fire department. I was re to report for an interview, and uh, I passed the interview. And uh, after training for a couple of weeks, I was posted the number one one pump in Adelaide itself. And there was four trucks there. So anyway, um, comes along 1949. The British Empire Games were starting up again. They they were canceled during the war. Right, of course. Yeah. So uh, the first ones were going to be in um, Auckland, New Zealand in February 1950. So the trials were being held in Toronto, East York Stadium, and I had joined the track and field club at West NY, and I was training, but I was very fortunate in the Adelaide Fire Hall on the third floor. I had a set of rings and a rope, and I worked every day swinging in, on the rings and climbing the rope. So I was in pretty good shape. So anyway, the day the trials come along, in the newspaper they were mentioning this guy and that guy, nobody mentioned Stanley. So as the day ended, I won the pole vault, and I met the standard for the game. And so I was selected to represent Canada in the pole vault. The only problem was I needed 60 days leave of absence to go to uh, New Zealand. Right, of course. So, that, so the head of our union, he went to the city council and says, we, we have a, a firefighter who's uh, selected for represent Canada in the Empire Games, and they granted me 60 days leave. Fantastic. With pay. So anyway, <laughs> Even better. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, the chief at the time was a Scotsman named Peter Hurt, and he called me into the office. I thought he was going to congratulate me uh, on being selected. So he says to me, do you like the fire department? I said, yes, sir. And he says, do you plan to make a career of it? I said, yes. He says, well, it doesn't sound like it to me. He says, you gallivanting all over the world. And he couldn't even say pole vault, and he says, pole jumping. <laughs> 
So anyway, I come out of the office and I was a little depressed, I must admit. And the secretary, Mr. McCartney, he was a World War One veteran. He followed me into the hall and uh, he said, Stan, he says, don't worry. He says, you just go and do what you have to do. So now I'm moving on now to uh, 1954 where I rejoined my regiment. And I went to summer camp at Niagara in the Lake every summer for a week. And every Wednesday during that week of camp was a competition day. And there was a military uh, competition, like six-pounders, putting the Vickers gun into action and out of action, and uh, mortars into action, out of action, and also track and field events. Well, we, all the other uh, units in the garrison in Toronto were at the camp at the same time. And the regiment, our regiment did very well for years, eh, winning most of the competition. And in 1965 rolls around, and I had just retired from the regiment after 10 years, and uh, they were having the trooping of the colors at Varsity Stadium. So a lot of the veterans were asked to come back and walk in the ranks for the parade that day. So I, I did the same thing, and it went over very well. It was in the evening, and the colonel, or left the colonel at the time, I don't know, his name was Learmont, and it was a very moving experience, you know, uh, my, my first real trooping. And in the stands was my mother watching, and I was really happy. So then uh, I had retired from the regiment, and 1972 come along, and I was called up again, and I was made a color sergeant. And uh, it was RSM Barbend at the time. I, I got over that, and I tell you, that was another thing. Oh, that was about the end of my military experiences. I had the honor and the privilege of retiring your colors, your 1975 colors, during the yes, parade yes. at Varsity Stadium in 2009. Oh, you were on the, the, the color guard? I was. I was the parade sergeant major for the Royal Regiment of Canada and the Toronto oh, Scottish. Oh, hey, that's good. I'm glad to hear that. I also wanted to give you an opportunity to talk about your experiences with the Queen Mother because I know that the Queen Mother is near and dear to members of the Toronto Scottish Regiment, and I know that you've met her on a couple of occasions. Yes. Well, I, I met her at Pitts Hill. I just m noticed her coming through the ranks at Varsity Stadium. Of course, I was a color sergeant, and she just went by the colors, you know, and, and just nodded, eh? Oh, and then again, when we went over in 1985, selected members that, that were Toronto Scottish, mostly veterans that were overseas, uh, we had tea with her. Fantastic. At Clarence House. And uh, she walked amongst us, talking to us, eh? And they had all these men with what, uh, red jackets on, serving drinks, eh? That was the most memorial experience right there. And that was about the only time. Oh, and then again, she come to visit Fort York Armories, and Jack Grant and I had our World War II uniforms, and we were standing at the door of the museum. And I seen her again then, eh? Yeah. It's a wonderful lady. What an incredible story, Stan. And you have a way of telling your story that brings you right into the time, the period. You can practically see those putties and and the uh, uniforms and the old cars and trains and boats that you traveled on. Uh, is there anything else you'd like to say just to wrap up? Just to wrap up, I, I was going to mention that, like I'm jumping, uh, 1975, uh, I read in the paper where the Canadian Masters athletes, track and field, athletes over 40, they were starting up uh, for competition. So I, uh, I signed up to, uh, with them, and uh, I competed in the 100, 200, and, and the pole vault. And like I told you, I, um, uh, every second year there was a world championship, and the first one was in Toronto, and I competed, and I got a bronze medal. But that back then, it was 10-year 
uh, age group. That meant that somebody 40 would be working out to get somebody that was 50. Right. So later on, they cut down to five-year groups. So uh, I went to five different countries. I, I, I went to Sweden. I went to Germany. I went to uh, Finland. And I went to Australia and United States. And out of the ones that I competed in, I won three golds a silver and a bronze, and I was quite happy. <laughs> and I competed in there. Uh, my last meet was 2005. It was the United States National Track and Field Championships, and I went down there, and I was only two centimeters off uh, the world record in pole vaulting. Amazing. Yeah, so on my way home, I thought, you know, I'm 80 years old. I think it's time I retired again. <laughs> so <laughs> I did. In fact, I put my poles up in the garage and even now, today, I, I go out and I look at them and I think I'm making a comeback. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Now, uh, I said to my daughter the other day, I said, last year, 2012, Tim Stewart asked me to go to the school to talk to the children on Remembrance Day. Actually, it was November the 7th. And over the years, he's asked me many, many times, but I, I just didn't want to do it, eh? So finally, uh, at the Christmas party, uh, the 2011, my granddaughter was with me, and he come up and asked me again, and I was just going to say no when my granddaughter chipped in. She says, Poppy, she said, you told your story. So anyway, I told him I would do it. So I had almost five, six months, and I didn't have any notes, and uh, because I just had what was in my head, eh? I went to the school thinking that it would be a class of 35 kids. Well, I walked in there, and the auditorium, there must have been over 200 students. Well, I thought, Stanley, my boy, you can't back up now. Nope. <laughs> so, so I just got up there, and I talked, hey, for just like year by year, you know, what happened. And I got a standing ovation. Amazing. And uh, the, the CTV were there that day, and uh, they recorded it all, eh? But, uh, and then on a very sad note here now, 2001, my wife passed away, and uh, it was a very sad time for me. And a couple of years later, I, I sold my house in Toronto, and I moved to uh, Burlington, Ontario, near my daughter. And uh, I am quite happy, and my granddaughter, she takes me to most of the regimental functions, and I'm happy. And Excellent. And I'd just like to say carry on. Thanks, Stan. Thank you for listening to the Canadian Military History Podcast. I hope that you've enjoyed this episode. If you did enjoy the podcast, please leave some feedback on iTunes. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please send me an email at cmhp at gmail.com. Please let me know if you'd like me to read your comments on the air. While you're waiting for our next episode, please visit the website at www.canadianmilitaryhistorypodcast.ca or the CMHP Facebook page. If you'd like to support the podcast by making a donation, please click the PayPal link on the webpage. The next time you're considering buying something from Amazon.ca, please visit the Canadian Military History Podcast website and click on my Amazon link. A small portion of your purchase goes directly towards the support and maintenance of the podcast. However, your great price from Amazon doesn't change. All donations will go directly into the production of the podcast. All music is used with the express permission of the commanding officer. End tag music is provided by the Princess Patricia's Canadian Light Infantry. 
Views and opinions are those of the guests of the Canadian Military History Podcast and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Mike LaCroix Productions, the Government of Canada, or the Department of National Defence. This is a Mike LaCroix Production.